other place to start COVID calls today than with a sobering reflection on the Russian invasion of Ukraine and the crisis and devastation that is ensuing as we speak. As someone who spends a lot of time thinking about the disaster politics of COVID-19, it's painful to consider the ramifications of adding another mindless, harmful, and anti-humanitarian disaster on top of an epidemic one. And my heart goes out to those in Ukraine and those impacted by this devastating violence. Welcome to the 430th episode of COVID Calls, a daily discussion of the COVID-19 pandemic with a diverse collection of disaster experts. My name is Jacob Steer-Williams, and I'm a historian of public health at the College of Charleston in South Carolina, and I'm thrilled to be hosting the program this week. You can join me every day this week on COVID Calls, where I'll be speaking with some incredible individuals whose voices need to be heard as we continue to navigate the pandemic landscape, including clinicians, epidemiologists, historians of science, medicine, and public health. Just a reminder, you can catch COVID Calls with me throughout the week. Our live show is set for tomorrow starting at 3 p.m. Eastern Time for a special graduate student roundtable with Kristen Brigg, Alex Perry, Madeline Ware, and Matt Davidson. To find the program, go to COVID Calls YouTube TV channel. You can also hear COVID Calls anytime recorded as a podcast on Spotify, iTunes, Podbean, or anywhere else you get podcasts. You can keep up with COVID Calls via Twitter using the handle at COVID Calls, at Steer Williams, or Scott at US of Disaster. Please help spread the word about COVID Calls and feel free to send suggestions for guests or future topics as the pandemic unfolds to either myself or to Scott Knowles. As of today, February 23rd, 2022, there have been 5,922,975 reported deaths from COVID-19 worldwide, according to the Johns Hopkins University Coronavirus Resource Center. The COVID-19 death rate for the US continues to rise as we approach 1 million Americans who have died of COVID-19, and daily deaths in this country still hover between 2,000 and 3,000 people per day. Across the U.S. this week alone, ICU, bed, ICU beds were at 75% capacity on average. But these numbers are not just numbers. It's one of the things I want to talk about with my two guests today. Their life's loss, their parents, their partners, and neighbors, and coworkers, their friends, and their children. As a way to humanize these numbers, each day this week, I'll read a real-life story or a story of advocacy for those impacted by the pandemic in some way. My story today comes from journalist Caitlin Alanis of CBLSA. The headline, 17-year-old girl who felt indestructible dies from COVID-19 in California, family says. Before 17-year-old Kennedy Stoneham died of COVID-19 complications in California, family members say they begged her to get vaccinated against the coronavirus. Myself and my wife and her grandmother pleaded, pleaded with her, Father Lee Stoneham of Orange County told CBL SLA. I think like most teenagers, she felt indestructible. I know I did when I was that age. She didn't know enough about the vaccine, so she refused to get the shot, her family says. I pleaded with her, actually. Probably not the right tone to take, but what do you do? Grandmother Marilyn Shea Stoneham of Ohio told, told IdeaStorm Public Media. And she would say politely, I think about, I'll think about it. But her circle of friends, by and large, were not vaccinated. By late January, Kennedy felt sick enough to go to the emergency room. And she was hospitalized with COVID-19. While hospitalized, 
Families say she developed hemophagiocytic lymphohistiocytosis, a rare disease that causes the immune system to stop working properly and organs to swell. It can be brought about on by other infections, according to Johns Hopkins. Her prognosis worsened, and on February 11th, doctors found a major brain bleed, Lee Stoneham told the news site. Family chose to take her off life support that same day, and she died shortly thereafter. Kennedy was a junior at San Juan Hills High School and an employee of Selma Pizza and Tap Room in Ladera Ranch, according to the restaurant. We are all saddened by this sudden loss and send condolences to Kennedy's family and friends, the restaurant shared on Facebook. Our thoughts are with Kennedy's family, friends, and all affected by this tragic loss. Now the Stoneham family is urging others to get vaccinated against the coronavirus. I want to tell them to trust the science, Lee Stoneham told CBSLA. I want to tell them that YouTube and TikTok aren't research. I want to tell them that even if it's one in a million chance, those statistics don't matter when it's your child. What happened to Kennedy was exceedingly unlikely and very, very rare, and none of that matters to me now. My guest today, and let me bring them on the show. So I have two really brilliant epidemiologists to speak with today to talk about all things to statistics and, and epidemiology and, and some of the, the really complicated ways that epidemiology is figured in the pandemic and, and continues to. My first guest is Dr. Freya Jepcott, who's a senior research associate at the Center for the Study of Existential Risk at the University of Cambridge. She's trained as both a medical anthropologist and an epidemiologist. And Dr. Jeffcott's research focuses on the effectiveness of outbreak response systems, particularly in resource-limited settings, the management of outbreaks of uncertain etiology and cause, and in particular, she's worked on zoonoses. Freya has also participated in applied policy work on health emergencies for Médecins Sans Frontières and for the World Health Organization. It's so nice to have you here, Freya. It's a pleasure to be here. My second guest is David Stedson, who's a consultant public health epidemiologist and entrepreneur who, after spending a decade in public health research and being trained as an epidemiologist, moved into the field of IT and digital health startups. His work on epidemiology is focused on mitigation strategies of drunk driving, and recently he has written extensively about COVID-19, particularly in Scandinavian countries. He's the founder of Vanatech, a digital health company that helps to promote behavioral change in health using the latest research in epidemiology, psychology, and health economics. So nice to have you here, David. Thanks for the invitation, Jacob. So we, we like to start on COVID calls with a really basic question to get things rolling. So why don't you both uh, tell us where you're calling from and what the pandemic situation is there? So Freya, let's start with you. So I'm calling from Cambridge in the UK. And right now, well, at the sort of UK level cases are come down from the last wave. But actually, my part of Cambridge is a bit of a stronghold. The R0's just wobbling a little below one. But overall, they're coming down. Hospitalizations are still quite high. Deaths because of the lag is still a bit high. And uh, obviously, like a lot of the world now, we have quite a large burden of long COVID that's not really going anywhere anytime soon. Um, so, yeah. Do you do you see in, in, in discourse in around Cambridge in the UK, how is mask wearing and compliance? How are people every day sort of talking about um, COVID, COVID normal, um, COVID end endemicity? I mean, are you I mean, that's what I'm seeing in the US. Are you seeing that in the UK as well? 
Oh, no, absolutely. And a few days ago, there was an announcement uh, by the Prime Minister, essentially announcing, which I think we saw coming from them, that they were going to scale back a lot of the protections and interventions that were remaining. Um, and even though this is slightly outside of the government's purview, even the requirement to wear masks on public transport, uh, like Transport London, has now uh, been removed, which given what a kind of non-intrusive and effective intervention that is, I think it gives you a sense of the, the rhetoric that's currently being peddled, this idea that if we stop looking and if we just act like it's not going on, then somehow we'll stop feeling it, which obviously isn't the case. I actually just got back from Australia where mask wearing and adherence to these things was a lot higher, um, despite only recently opening up and really feeling it for the first time. So you know, it's a bit surreal. Yeah, it really is. And that, that's something I'm glad you mentioned that um, it's something that uh, that I think I've spoken with every guest on COVID calls about. And it's one of the most interesting things about starting our daily discussions in this way is just speaking with people all around the world who are who are who are in their own local ways navigating the pandemic and just to see how varied our responses have been across the world or even within countries. I mean, on uh, on earlier this week, I spoke to to two people in Philadelphia and one in Boston. And like that experience has been fundamentally different from mine, let alone thinking about Australia or the UK or where David is. And 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 that's that's this feature of of pandemic realities that I think even for those of us that study pandemics and epidemics is really hard to live through in real time. So David, why don't, why don't we bring you in and tell us where you're calling from and, and what things are like there? Yeah, I, um, I'm in Sweden. I live a couple of hours north of um, the capital, Stockholm. Honestly, what's the pandemic situation here? We have really no idea. They, uh, they stopped testing on anyone except um, healthcare workers and hospitalized some weeks back. Uh, if I'm if I'm sick, I can't get tested, and um, there's it's very difficult even to find your own um, rapid antigen tests, so they, they can be found. And but if we look at things like wastewater and um, COVID symptom study, which is in the UK as well, we've we've probably passed the peak of the, um, the Omicron wave, the first wave. I'm a little concerned we're going to have a, a double peak after the pandemic was pretty much declared over a, a couple of weeks ago. But, yeah, but for us, it's sorry. Yeah, that's that's exactly what I'm afraid of too. Um, it almost seems that that looking at any of the the epidemiological models that we have, it seems, you know, I don't want to say inevitable because I I don't think that's like a a a, a very like proper position to take right now. But I think there's a really strong likelihood of seeing seeing another wave, um, and and maybe not in in the too distant future. So today in the program, um, I want to talk with both of you about, about epidemiology and some of the more interesting features of epidemiology that we've seen during the pandemic. And in particular, some of the ways in which epidemiology has been framed as, as a science or a set of tools or methodology and how the public consumes epidemiology. So as any of the listeners of COVID calls will know, my own research um, as a historian is in the field of epidemiology. And in particular, on the discipline generative moments of the late 19th and early 20th century, where in that period, as I've argued in my research, epidemiology developed a unique methodology for studying disease events and one that was predicated upon outbreak investigation. 
And often that meant field work. It meant interviewing everyday people and it meant uh, careful case tracing and experimentation, but it also meant statistical analyses of morbidity and mortality. And by the 1930s, it meant disease modeling, all of which are have been enveloped into what epidemiology is and means and how it's practiced today. But what's long struck me is in, in the history of epidemiology is the tension that I've seen in my own work between field-based qualitative work in epidemiology and statistical-based quantitative work. And, and both of these, of course, have been and continue to be at the center of making epidemiological knowledge today, not just about COVID, but, but studying any infectious and, of course, many chronic diseases now, but also in terms of how epidemiological knowledge doesn't just get produced, but it gets communicated. And that's been really central to to our our experience worldwide of the COVID-19 pandemic. So I just I just was reading this study before this talk um, to somehow get my mind off of what's happening in Ukraine. And The Economist just published about 45 minutes ago this article that was called Are Some Countries Faking Their COVID-19 Deaths Counts? And it's all about this like worry about where and how um, death counts for COVID are, are happening right now. This like real. So in other words, like what we've seen in the last two years, I think, is a kind of like at one level, sometimes an unbridled faith in epidemiological knowledge and epidemiological science, but also at other times a deep skepticism of epidemiology and epidemiological knowledge. So and often this has been around the numbers, um, the statistics of COVID, whether they be case, case fatality, whether they be morbidity, mortality. And, and both of you, I think, in, in, in really important ways, work at these intersections. So that's what I want to talk about today. So, David, let me start with you. You've been um, what I consider to be one of the leading voices in epidemiology and helping us make sense of how, in Scandinavian countries in particular, how their governments have managed and sometimes mismanaged the response to COVID-19. Starting about three weeks ago, the Swedish government, where you are, announced an end to most COVID restrictions, an end to COVID-19 testing, as you said in your introduction, and have even went as far as to not embrace vaccination for most kids aged 5 to 11. Sweden, of course, is not alone in this. We've seen many countries in Europe and North America following suit. Uh, I saw this morning that Iceland announced that they're removing restrictions for COVID uh, starting tomorrow. So what do you think is driving these decisions in Scandinavian countries to embrace what, what I've called recently endemic fatalism? And, and where do you see the tension of where the science of epidemiology is on COVID right now and where the politics of COVID is right now? Yeah, so it's it's an interesting question. That in, endemic fatalism, I, I think, is a great term to describe it. But when you, you look back at what's gone on in the, in the last two years, and, and you know historians will tell us the tale in, a, in the decades follow, it's there's been politics, or I'd say ideology, involved right from the beginning. Uh, you know, we look, for example, at um, uh, John Yanadis, the, the epidemiologist from Stanford, and uh, we learned that he was in meeting with Trump back in March 2020 to argue against restrictions and, and lockdowns and such things. And that was well before we really had much data and, and stuff that was going on. And there were so many decisions that were made uh, back then based on very limited data coming out of China 
uh, it's 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 mild. Uh, there's very few asymptomatic cases. There's um, you know it'll well Johan Jacecki, the the former state epidemiologist here, and he's a WHO advisor, uh, was saying he, he thought it would basically blow through the population like a, the flu within a couple of months and hardly anybody would even notice they were sick. Uh, and so there was so much of this ideology behind the decision-making, people's assumptions and, and all the, the, the cognitive biases that we all suffer from was affecting all of us there. And, and then you have these, um, these scientists and often bureaucrat scientists um, that were advising the government and the government was could basically have a, a choice of who they wanted to listen to. And obviously they, they like to listen to the, the positive ones that tell us, well, you can do this and, uh, and you won't have to, to shut down. And we saw this again and again, where, where governments would make decisions and then suddenly realize uh, exponential growth would catch up with them and they'd, they'd suddenly have to, to change what they were doing and United Kingdom, I, I think is one of the classic examples of that have been, um, Sweden's actually been very steady in its response, mm -hmm. uh, steadily bad in my view, but, yeah. um, but in, in some ways the UK got it even worse because of, of the, the constant changing and they had the worst of both worlds. Mm. So, uh, you know, I, I, it's been there all the time, you know, politicians are, are supposed to make decisions about, about not only health choices, but how it affects other aspects of society. So it's not an easy place to be, but I would have very much liked to have seen um, far better coordination and leadership all the way down from from who, uh, from ECDC and the EU, here in the Nordics, more, a more uh, coordinated approach. Um, you know, in Sweden, we were very affected by, by limits of our laws uh, and, and culture here in that uh, we couldn't declare a state of emergency that's kind of limited to war only mm. and um, our government basically had one expert authority and they handed all the decision making to them uh, now they and then under anti-corruption laws they're not really supposed to interfere with them now they can ask them to do things they can fire the boss and stuff like that but they're basically uh, obliged to, to follow the advice and as are the, the swedish people and then there's a there's a lot of myths and miscommunications about that, and the the government hasn't helped with it either. Because you you probably heard how in Sweden there were, uh, you didn't have to actually do anything; there were just recommendations. But in fact, the recommendations are you are legally obliged to follow them, right. and um, the public health authority pointed this out in March that these weren't just suggestions, weren't just recommendations; you have to follow them. The problem is there's no enforcement and there's no enforcement mechanism. And uh, they very quickly stopped talking about that and even changed their websites and said, these are voluntary and we trust you and started um, promoting it almost as a, as a, uh, well, here there's a term called Sveyabilden, the Swedish image. And then it became part of the Swedish image that it, we were we were trusting the people to do the right thing. Yeah, that's interesting, too, because like there's there's a term in, you know, public health that I'm sure both of you are aware of that, you know, I teach students about that's called methodological individualism. And it's been shown in so many case studies of public health change that it, it doesn't work like just asking individuals and putting all of the onus on individuals to make real preventative public health changes is an ineffective strategy. It requires new laws. It requires enforcement. It requires new 
you know, new compulsory kinds of decision making. And, and I think that's what's been really interesting about, about, about the Swedish case in particular. You know, the other thing that I'll mention that, that strikes me about what you said that so resonates with the history of, of epidemiology and public health in the last 100, 150 years is, you know, coming into COVID early in the pandemic, I tried to tell people, as many people that would listen in the public sphere, and, and I wrote some op-eds about this, is we should expect the science of COVID to change. It's not as if we have, we have you know, brilliant, you know, people who work on virology and epidemiology all around the world. And as we experience this pandemic in the first six months, in the first year, in the first five years, the science is going to change. But what's going to be critical is how governments interact with that changing scientific landscape. And I think there was a misconception from the very beginning among so many people in the in the public that somehow this was just going to be this scientific problem that science could just immediately tell us what the answer was. And then government would just listen and then it would be solved. And, and I mean, if anybody's paying attention to climate change before COVID struck, then like we know that that isn't how this works between science and society, but it does strike me that like, there is still like a really object lesson here that is gonna have to be a historical one painfully about COVID to see how COVID science changed in real time and how differentially different governments responded to put that change into action. So Freya, I wanna bring in, bring in you here. So to provide a kind of additional um, perspective. So a lot of your work, um, uh, and, and what I find so fascinating about it, because it dovetails in really important ways, and that we got we got to follow up and continue some conversations with how it dovetails with my own approach and studying the history of epidemiology, is to push back against quantitative only approaches to epi and to look instead at ethnographic and qualitative outbreak response, and and in particular how that kind of work is done in often ignored and conflict ridden countries. So can you tell us more about some of your recent work and why taking an ethnographic approach to epidemiology and outbreak management um, provides a kind of different picture from what we often hear? And I think we've mostly heard on a global setting about COVID-19. Yeah, sorry, there's a, a lot to go into there. So yeah. um, I think, and also there's something I want to come back later too, which is the sort of what the BMJ called merchants of doubt this group mm. of epidemiologists that sort of covered yeah. the US, uh, the Nordic countries and the UK with this, a lot of herd immunity sort of rhetoric and the seeming backdoor they had to a lot of policymakers and how that might have undermined other kinds of more mainstream and reasonable public health discourse. Um, but setting that aside for a second, because, you know, as a researcher, I just love to talk about my own thing. Uh, what I so I started out like coming at things from the more purely sort of traditionally epidemiological perspective, um, surveillance data, responses, and the like. I, but what I discovered was actually the way that things like surveillance systems function, the the ability to detect burdens of disease and characterize them and recognize them. It was the sum of this incredible array of factors, from treatment-seeking behaviors to clinical pictures to the local epidemiology to the big one was the sort of professional norms of the people that comprise our public health systems. And so I really like to look at that sort of black box that you get sometimes between the burden of disease as you see and experience it in the community, and then the sort of data or more often the sort of narratives that are produced at the top. 
and kind of what's going on in between there. And within that, you see all kinds of things disappearing or being created. And you realize that actually a lot of the infrastructure as it goes from the community level to the national, it produces uh, the same kind of narratives over and over again, rather than something that could necessarily be seen as a particularly useful or meaningful, as in like actually lead to meaningful intervention kind of rendering of what's going on. So I, yeah, I love me a little bit of ethnography mixed in with the, with the more classical epidemiological work. Yeah, I think, you know, this is something that, um, that when I talk about it and frame the history of epidemiology in this way, often people are taken aback by it. And, and, and that response alone is really fascinating because what I'll say is like, you know, I, I've said this for like 10 years in studying the history of epidemiology. I've said like, one of the central tools of 19th century epidemiologists in Britain was narrative storytelling. Like crafting a narrative about an outbreak is part of the process of creating epidemiological knowledge. And what stories are selected, what individuals are selected, they go into creating like an epidemic imagery and they also go into making real policy decisions. And, and that's been for a very long time at the center of what it means to study epidemiology. Somehow, you know, and I think I know the historical reasons for this, but there's so many preconceptions today about epidemiology as, as a hard science or as, a, as labeled as some kind of scientific um, pursuit. And I think that has a lot to do with how that discipline professionalized in the, in the starting in the interwar period and how they tried to, you know, glob on to biostatistics and epidemic modeling. And, you know, I think there's a lot of really important reasons for that that continue today. But but it's so it's so refreshing to hear somebody like you just like who works in this field to just say, like, no, I prioritize those kinds of narrative ethnographic approaches because they're one like. I wonder if anyone's asked you is like, is that unusual in epidemiology to study things that way? Because my response would be like, no, no, that's actually at the heart of the field. It, it's so I'm actually finding it really hard at the moment to get a grips with what the field looks like to sort of characterize it. And I'm really sort of relying on people like you and Lucas Engelman and the like to at some point explain to me what I'm seeing here. Uh, it's hard not to get sort of fascinated with the rise of mathematical modeling at least in the UK in particular, but I keep having to remind myself that that just is the sort of most apparent, most obvious form of epidemiology, if you can call it that, within the UK right now. And actually there's work being done by people like Alexa Haggerty and Richard McKay and Yuende Okulia. Looking at, even in the UK, we have sort of public health professionals at the interface between community and our formal health structures that actually realize public health intervention and surveillance systems. They're the ones working there. They're doing some great work at the moment in, I think, the Hackney boroughs, looking at the contact tracing there. And what you realize is actually when you have that interface and the kind of proximity ethics that slip into public health, when you're face to face with suffering and responsible for the community around you, you still get the kind of narratives that are reactive and are kind of held accountable to the reality on the, well, reality, sorry, that's the anthropologist in me, but yeah, the reality on the ground. Um, but that kind of gets a bit lost higher up and I, I'd be really interested to read more. I imagine this is a burgeoning area of research on how to understand mathematical modeling as part of epidemiology and who comprises these networks and how their thinking 
looks different from what I think of as epidemiologist, as a field epidemiologist that comes from the outbreak investigation tradition. That's right. And I think like I was, of course, paying really close attention to this early in COVID because this is what I'm fascinated with. And it, and it seemed to me this this could just be anecdotal and I could be wrong because I'm, I'm biased here um, on this history. But like it seemed to me that in the first the first wave of COVID and the initial framing of the pandemic, when people use the word epidemiology or epidemiologists, who they meant were the modelers. Yeah. And, and, and I don't, I, that's something that we got to reckon with, like at a really big level, because as, as your lived experience and expertise shows, like that's, the modeling is one part of what has become epidemiology, but it's, it's, it's not, it doesn't represent all epidemiological practices or maybe necessarily like the best kind of epidemiological practices that we could have had to COVID. So I'm still thinking today about how like, and, and this is this is why I'm, it's so it's so wonderful to have both of you as guests because we're at a moment where I think so many countries are declaring COVID to be over or endemic, and and they're doing it for, as David said, very political reasons. I think that's clear, but they're also doing it using epidemiology as a kind of crutch to to make politicized arguments and ones that I think leaders very inherently understand everyday people want. But it doesn't necessarily mean that we're using the science of epidemiology in, in, in ethical or moral or effective ways. I feel like actually a lot of the time it's not even epidemiology they're using. It's the trappings of epidemiology. It's bits and pieces of language that then as someone with some background in epidemiology, you rack your brain trying to reconcile with what you're looking at and you realize the words aren't meaning what they should mean. And you should be able, like, I and mean, they've it's changed still, the meaning. Yeah, exactly. And like simple things like germ theory really kind of constrain <laughs> how much can happen in terms of an epidemic. You should be able to say, especially at this stage, these are the options. This is how things can. But because there isn't actually a coherent vision or policy being taken that maps onto real epidemiological data, they can't do it. You just have to talk in these vague terms of back to normal. It's it's propaganda. It's it's pretending to be epi, but it it, it isn't. And it, you can really like, I don't know, do yourself some mental strain trying to make it epidemiologically compatible. So David, let me ask you a different version of the same question to continue this, because this is this is so fascinating. This is literally where my headspace is. 70 mm. percent of the time as I navigate the world right now is like trying to make sense of this. So, David, on, on COVID calls, um, Scott and I have been adamant on, on two really big points about trying to use this program to make sense of COVID-19. And one is that is that. COVID-19 needs to be seen in, in, the, in, in the tradition of the more than human approach and the long disaster approach. And two, that human stories are at the core of disasters and at the core of, of, of epidemics. But if you look around the last two years, and I know that's something that you've been doing because I follow your Twitter account, 
what we've seen about COVID is this narrative on numbers about mortality, case fatality, morbidity, survival rates. It's all just numbers. And, and this, what I characterize as an over-reliance on numbers is, is really been bothering me because as we've been talking about at the core of this, I think is, is a political debate. Um, and, and what's so frustrating as someone who studies epidemiology, and I'm wondering um, for you and for Freya or people who work in the field of epidemiology, is that you see politicians on all sides, pretty much all across the world, just using numbers and COVID statistics however they want to make claims that they want. So they're they're using the they're using whatever they're just finding evidence to to reinforce the political arguments that they are making. But these these numbers don't measure human suffering. They don't measure the suffering of children who have lost caregivers. They don't they don't measure the mental health impact of pandemic anguish or the suffering of long COVID. So what what can you reflect and tell us about this over-reliance on numbers and, and how might we break through this pattern of behavior or just think differently about it even? It's, um, you're probably familiar with the, the late great Swedish epidemiologist and science communicator Hans Rosling. Mm -hmm. And I actually saw a clip of an interview with him on Danish TV uh, from a few years ago. And he was talking about poverty in Africa as one of his favorite topics. And uh, the interviewer was quoting statistics to him. And he was going, these aren't numbers. These are people. You know, and you, you can't forget that. You always have to remember that these are people. And I'm, I'm constantly having that kind of debate with people in, in, in Sweden who are quoting statistics. And you know, the latest, greatest thing everyone's focused on is excess mortality because it's so easy to make it say whatever you want it to say. Uh, now, statistics has always been abused. That's why we've got the saying, lies, damn lies, and statistics. But I'd, I'd take it a little further than that in that, you know, we're, we're, we're talking pandemic here. And there's actually very, very few people in the world, epidemiologists, who actually have experience in pandemics. There's not anything like this. Uh, Fauci is one of the few. He was a, a scientist early in the, the last major pandemic. We had the, the the small kind of false starts that happened with uh, SARS, for example, and things like that. So there's no experts. There are no experts. So we need to bring in all sorts of people. And here in Sweden, in particular, epidemiology has, has very much been uh, what I've, I've kind of characterized clinical epidemiologists and public health epidemiologists. And the clinical epidemiologists, they're all they're all doctors, basically, and they've all got this medical background. And they all tend to not actually have that much science training and not that much statistics training. Uh, and often you find they really don't understand what they're talking about when they're quoting numbers. And you, you see them um, publishing papers that are getting published. And they're, they're, they're saying, I, I just saw this on a long COVID paper the other day, or it might have been a vaccine efficiency paper, you know, that, that we found there was uh, no effect of such, an, of such and such an intervention or something. Then you looked at the confidence intervals and they were huge. And that didn't say they didn't find that there was no effect. That showed the study wasn't good enough to be able to find an effect. And these basic type of issues just people don't seem to be aware of. Um, and it, for me, it's it's kind of uh, it's basic statistical knowledge that that's missing in a lot of cases. And this is with people who are in leadership positions, scientific leadership positions, and people that have got hundreds of published papers. And when you actually start to pay attention to them, you realize this is terrible. I, when I started um, as a researcher, as a research assistant at the University of Queensland in Australia, that was my job was 
do the literature reviews, grab all the papers, go through them all, work out the quality of them, do all that kind of stuff. And I learned quick then back in the, the, the 80s and 90s that there's a lot of bad science out there. And, and now we're getting swamped every day with preprints. And, and then we're starting to, and then we're seeing papers that are getting published super fast that are peer reviewed. And, and you want, how the heck did that get peer reviewed? Because there's absolute rubbish getting published all over the place. And then the other factor I've noticed is that how few people seem to be doing decent literature reviews these days. So they're not actually pulling in the prior knowledge. Uh, they're, they're quoting like, uh, I used to, used to have to take three months just going through the literature before you could even think about writing a paper. And we have a, a, a professor here, a pediatrician, who's literally pumping out uh, two papers a week. And I'm like, how do you do that? But everybody's so focused on their H index and getting as much publications out there and getting the funding in and all of these type of issues. And, and, and so science has become this, this treadmill of trying to get published and get data out. And the quality, I think, is, is, has dropped dramatically. But the second type thing I want to point into, and it comes into this ethnographic um, approach as well, which is a big fan of what we did. I'm a big fan of which, what I was working with in Australia, is that right, we're in a pandemic. Um, you've got these things we call NPIs, non-pharmaceutical in interventions, right? So you've got the drug treatments and the treatments in hospital, and you've got the vaccines. Everything else is behaviour. Why the heck have we got doctors in charge of that you know my my startup is is focused on this area because back in 2013 the world health organization said the the biggest single public health challenge we have is adherence you know everybody knows um how to get fit or how to eat healthy but so few of us can actually do it we all get we all get uh, given instructions from our physiotherapist on the exercise we have to do but we don't do it uh, there's like a huge percentage of people that have heart attacks. Six months later, they're not taking the medicine. And it's kind of like, take this medicine or you die. And then we, we come into a pandemic where it's all about behavior and getting people to change their behavior. And very, very, very few of the experts involved knew anything about this area. Hmm. And strangely enough, the UK is probably one of the best equipped there with the, the, the nudge unit. Um, uh, but they seem to have this kind of ideology, ideological influence as well and seem to be forgetting their own research. I've been a big fan of them and not so much anymore. I thought they, they've made a lot of mistakes. So yeah. when you're talking with these NPIs, it's all about the individual, isn't it? Uh, and then when you're talking about misuse of data, again, risk. How do you got to judge your own personal risk? We're expecting everybody to be hobby epidemiologists. Uh how, how do you do that? I, I have a thing I call the importance of N equals one. There's a, a sample size of one, and um, you might con consider it the ecological fallacy, how people take big data and say, well, okay, the a, a vaccine protects me 80%, so that's not very much, but hang on, is that really the way it works? And So I've got a one in five chance of getting seriously ill, and then what happens if I get infected a second time and a third time? And People can't judge these risks and that none of it's been communicated. But the most shocking thing to me has been how many of these scientists and epidemiologists and chief medical officers and such that they don't even seem to understand these basic statistical concepts. For God's sake, don't get me started on exponential growth. How, how many countries have clearly not understood that and continue not to two years later? Yeah. 
So we've always in health, it's ultimately always about the the individual, isn't it? And and getting them to do what's what's um, beneficial to them. Yeah, that's interesting. I mean, like I spoke yesterday with um, with two with an epidemiologist, um, Kathleen Baczynski, and with a historian of sport, Johanna Mellis, and, and they're both like um, do extensive research in sport and risk and injury. Uh, prevention. And and what our discussion yesterday was so fascinating about it is we kind of came to the conclusion of so much of our public health uh, work and thinking about sport and risk is is predicated upon individual risk to athletes, when in fact, like an effective public health approach would be population level approaches towards risk. With that's athletes. That's been another big issue, uh, particularly early on in the epidemic, um, that people didn't seem to understand that difference, like wearing a mask and individual risk, may be a small difference. There was there's a there's an epidemiologist in Sweden who's a, a favourite of the media here, and um, she republished a study from Norway, basically saying, "Oh, the effect of masks was um, only ten percent, and it would only have this small effect." And and I took the numbers out of the study she was quoting, and I, and I said, "Well, if we're at this reproduction level right now," And we had everybody or 80% of the population wearing masks. Basically, that figure says the pandemic or the epidemic here would be over in about two months. Yeah. And they don't understand that the, the individual risk can be individual uh, effect of an intervention can be rather small. Uh, but the, the effect on population level is absolutely huge. And yeah. um, good public health epidemiologists have got to always be thinking about that population level, but not losing sight of the fact it's made up of individuals. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So Freya, your, um, your work has, has extensively examined disease transmission and, and disaster displacement. And, and, and you've worked um, as a manager of epidemiological activities, working on disease outbreaks and malnutrition in Somalia, for example, in um, IDP camps in Ethiopia. And, and I want to ask you um, uh, what I, what I know is a really hard question, um, especially today is, is what you found the relationship between disasters and displacement um, in your own research, how you're thinking about that um, is developing with the ongoing COVID-19 crisis. Um, if you want to say anything about um, what's happening in war-torn Ukraine right now, I mean, I think like I'm, I need to go back and like re-read everything you've written on like this war and displacement and disease right now, because it is so important with what's literally happening right now of of putting a pandemic crisis. You know, Ukraine has just started. I was looking at the data this morning. They're just starting to go down from the Omicron surge. They're still really quite high from Omicron. And, and then you put massive displacement. You know, I, I was up late last night watching the UN Security Emergency Council meeting. And then this morning looking at what's happening in Ukraine and, and massive population displacement happening that probably will only continue in the days and the weeks to come. With, with more Russian troops on the ground. So how, what's the configuration here that we need to be thinking about that, that you've thought about in places like Somalia? Yeah, I, so I think for the most part, I've, normally when it comes to things like displacement, disease dynamics and conflict, the person I sort of defer to is probably Doreen Brahm um, and a lot of her work in this area. And essentially one of the take-homes from her brilliant studies is that... The, the exact dynamics and the exact factors that are going to determine the vulnerability of these populations to disease 
are so specific to a particular place and a particular population in a particular time that it's quite hard to come up with some sort of generalization or prediction. I, what I can say, though, again, without being able to specifically apply it to the Ukraine, is that obviously conflict makes everything much worse. And displacement doesn't just create health problems, like the, the kind of the obvious sort of ones. It, it just even the most mundane things like continuity of he- care during displacement is a huge problem. Like If you require some kind of ongoing treatment or some kind of condition, it, that immediately gets a lot, lot harder to coordinate. You have the obvious things like disruption of routine vaccinations, which seems so small when you live in a country like UK and you don't have to confront sort of large measles outbreaks. But I swear, after every outbreak, after every displaced kind of population, you're looking at an IDP, you get hit by those outbreaks. And it's because just very mundane public health routines were disrupted. And then you also have the thing that when people go back home, which people want to do, if you've had neglect or destruction of just core infrastructure, that's really sort of old school public health if your water systems if your housing, if your basic healthcare systems are impaired, then that's just sort of amusing. Sorry, apologies, David, for using exponential in this way. It's a sort of loose metaphoric term, but you just get this sort of compounding exponential growth of problem. It's, I mm. wish, I really wish it wasn't happening. Sorry. Yeah, yeah I can't be more specific than that. I'm no, I, I know. It's, it's very hard to talk about this in real time. Um, absolutely. David, what do you think about these, you know, what I'm calling now these double disasters that are that are occurring? Well, I'm actually going to throw in another aspect here. Uh, Ukraine has one of the lowest rates of vaccinations in Europe. It's uh, only about 35 percent with uh, one or two doses. And the fascinating thing is it's almost certainly actually been used as a weapon of war because that those very low rates of vaccination have um, are a result of propaganda campaigns, anti-vaccine-vax propaganda campaigns, many of which we can source to troll factories. Uh, and uh, I've been seeing this here in Sweden. Um, I had an interesting thing if, uh, a few weeks ago. They started, uh, There was a campaign to start up protests outside the Australian embassy against fascism in Australia, talking about the pandemic response in Australia. And I, uh, I engaged with the person promoting it. And uh, my wife has, a, has a, a Russian background. She's born in Sweden, but her parents are Russian and Ukrainian. We have family in Ukraine, so this is very close to me at the moment. And um, he was very clearly speaking in Russian English, somebody trying to organize protests outside the Australian embassy in Sweden. Hmm. And what's going to happen now? We're going to have a refugee crisis. There's going to be millions of people, many of whom are unvaccinated. Putin knows this. And they're going to be coming into 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 Europe. It's it, it's being used as a weapon weapon of war. I have no doubt about that. And of course, then the the, the problems we're going to have with with the refugee camps is is going to be terrible. Not only with COVID, obviously, and whatever next variant comes along, but um, you may have some insight on here, Freya and, and Jacob. I haven't looked actually what's been happening in the refugee camps in in Greece uh, and in the Middle East during during the pandemic. Yeah. Uh, we're going to probably find out on our doorstep here in, in Europe. In the yeah, and I think the, the really hard, what's really hard about this amongst so much of this humanitarian crisis is from a public health perspective, so much of what we put focus on 
for public health to work is prevention and, and, and like preventing a scale of crisis like this is it, it, it just compounds what are public health strategies at a moment at a, at a, such an explosive moment. Mm. Freya, I want to, um, I want to turn a little bit here to, to a slightly different topic. And, um, I want to talk to you about, um, what you helped to launch in October of 2021, the Hidden Epidemics Research Network, which is an interdisciplinary research um, network to connect various experts to think through the processes of epidemiological obfuscation. So can you tell us about that project and, and these cross-disciplinary networks and why they're, why they're needed right now? Uh, yeah, certainly. Um, in my, what happened was in my sort of applied work doing field epidemiology, but also my research, I kept encountering situations where doing sort of ethnography at this interface between public health and the community where there was an apparent burden of disease in the community, but for a variety of reasons, it wasn't getting like officially recognized by public health structures. Um, uh, it, yeah, in fact, a, a lot of the time it was actually sort of actively being sort of obscured or hidden by them, which kind of makes sense when you think of sort of public health and epidemiology as really the sort of arbiters of visibility in public health that it could work both ways. I, on a few occasions, it was, you know, really kind of obvious sort of political obfuscation. And like when I think back of the, the times I've encountered this phenomenon, I only realized recently when you said endemic uh, fatalism, I think, mm. uh, that there was another encounter I had with it that uh, totally slipped me by up until recently, which was I was working on a cholera outbreak in a politically sensitive part of Ethiopia. And in addition to them not admitting it was cholera, so as an epidemiologist trying to reconcile your numbers with the local district disease control officers, there's a lot of acute water, watery diarrhea rather than cholera. But weirdly enough, they were also demanding cholera rapid tests to be positive, which under count by 20%. So it was a very sort of surreal exchange of it's not cholera, but I will only accept the cases if they've tested positive for cholera kind of thing. But something that actually came from my own team's side that at the time I was a bit too nervous and new to really push on was just uh, things were sort of quietening down, but there were these still clusters of cholera cases in these two communities that would occasionally sort of flare up and we'd run over to. And we knew finally that after two years of drought, the rains were going to come in a couple of weeks. And so I was like, all right, we've really got to push hard. I know everyone's super tired of cholera, but we need to, you know, blast those with chlorine. And in the meetings, there was a lot of pushback by some very fatigued sort of humanitarian healthcare workers, I guess, that, and no, it's endemic now. It had never been in the area before, and they were declaring it endemic. And as the only epidemiologist in the room, I was like, that's, that doesn't sound right, but what? And they were like, well, there's like 800 wells in the area, what do you expect to do? And I was like, but only three of them have water in at the moment. We can surely do this. And they said, no, there's no point. It's it's in the area now. And at the time, I just, it stayed with me. It obviously has. But I, I remember being sort of stuck with that. And then I thought back, they have no claim to no data. There's nothing solid to back that up. There's no reason that wouldn't have worked. And that kind of fatalism really was confusing, too, because we're in public health. The idea is to help people live longer, fuller lives, not be like, oh, well, um, that's that. And it's always bugged me. And I only just realized that that was definitely a form of epidemiological obfuscation, and it's one we're seeing at the moment too. Very much. Um, yeah, yeah, it's just so weird. Uh, this whole COVID thing has been like going through this kind of, 
you know, the worst of the best hits in every other outbreak I've worked on. Right. Mm -hmm. And literally what you just described there, Freya, is like right out of the, the late Victorian playbook. I mean, that what you're describing is like, you know, of, of the, of you know, for, for my book that came out, The Filth Disease, which was on the epidemiology of typhoid in, in late Victorian and early Edwardian Britain, I studied probably like 300 outbreak investigations of typhoid in Britain and across the former empire. And like, I would say at least half, if not two thirds of those local outbreaks Local officials did the same thing. They they tried to do the same thing. It's not typhoid. It's not like this denialism is somehow a, is a kind of you know knee jerk reaction that's that's like baked into our approach. Um, so I'm fascinated by that. It really has it's been, it's been amazing. Yeah, sorry, sorry, I've just we've both got this Australian background. It's been amazing here in Sweden how often I'm getting told. And I'm not, and this has been from day one of the pandemic that it's impossible to stop. And I'm like, yeah, my friends in Australia are going to the football, and they've, you know, there've been zero problems at all. And New Zealand friends, it's their life is like completely normal. And but we skipped flu seasons, and flu was the one that everyone was always like, oh, there's nothing you can do. Well, if 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 if, <laughs> if, if these things don't work, what happened to the flu? <laughs> Where is it? it? It got scared of COVID and ran away. Yes. Uh, these things work. So I want to ask you one quick question, David, and then I have a then I have a final question for you both, which is on on this topic. Um, but I want to ask you, like, one of the things that Freya just mentioned is like this deep political entrenchment sometimes with between epidemiology, how it's being practiced by either government or NGOs. And and I wonder, like, you're somebody who who was you know working in the field of public health that now is doing digital startup you're sort of working outside of many of the traditional places where epidemiology is being practiced. How can something like what you're doing, what's, tell us like, because I'm so fascinated by this, like what, what's the big advantage? Because I, I know there are many. <laughs> One is I can speak my mind. I have no fear of <laughs> losing my job or tenure track or any of these type of issues and that's that's been a major issue here in Sweden there have actually been many scientists that have uh, have left Sweden because if they've been critical of the approach here uh, they've had uh, problems with colleagues fun problem funding withdrawn all sorts of massive issues that's another whole podcast to talk about that yeah. but um, what actually drove me wasn't so much that as uh, you know the podcast um, and the book Freakonomics, so the behavioral economist Stephen Levitt and, and Stephen Dubner, the journalist. And I was listening to one of them once, and they were talking about a an intervention. I, I don't recall the details. I think it was in a hospital in Chicago, something to do with diabetics coming into uh, ER. And they created this intervention, and it had absolutely incredible results. You know, if it was a drug, you'd be like, this is a miracle drug. It'd be on the front page of the newspapers. And... Um, Stephen Dubner asked the, the, the clinician who'd been implementing it, so is this going to get spread to other hospitals now? Are we going to get elsewhere? And he goes, no, and in fact, we're not doing it anymore either. And it's like, what? And he goes, yeah, it doesn't have a business model. And then I actually tracked down my old um, the research unit I used to be with in, in Australia, and we developed programs against teenage drink driving and uh, recidivist, uh, sorry, recidivist drink driving, teenage binge drinking, that type of thing. And uh, we're doing very, very long-term follow-ups, uh, 20 years, to, to see the, the effects of these programs. And they appear to be working, or they did. But are they being used anywhere anymore? 
No. So we, we have all these, these great um, programs and stuff that we know that work that nobody's using. And a lot of it comes down to money. And this comes down to the same thing we're seeing today. And so I, I started to think about, well, how can we make these things commercially sustainable? So then instead of having to rely on government funding, uh, they can they can keep working. And so you have to come up with some kind of product that people are willing to pay for or someone's willing to pay for to, to, to keep the whole thing supporting. And I started looking into uh, things like Fitbit data and all this type of stuff and what's going on there. And I discovered very, very little of the digital health stuff that's been happening actually has any basis in science or it's very, very limited. So the, the guys with the Fitbits, they work brilliantly for a very small cohort of people. Uh, uh, but they don't actually work very well for most people. And why not? So, so that's basically what I've been focused on the last few years, because I, I actually want to take all this brilliant knowledge, particularly in the last 20 years, behavioral economists have come in and changed social science because of the money involved. I don't know this. Psychologists and sociologists have been publishing lots of these findings for decades and nobody listened to us. And then the, uh, the economists get in and do the, start doing the same thing and it's getting Nobel prizes. Um, and see if I could kind of merge the, the behavioral science, the public health and the tech and see if we can actually create um, sustainable public health interventions that don't depend on government funding. So that, that's been my uh, my motive there. That's super interesting. And um, I'm just really intrigued to see how, how this work, you know, continues, particularly as we deal with a new phase of the pandemic. And, you know, we continue to grapple with long COVID and the you know, the downstream effects of COVID-19. You know, my uh, my partner works in the, the major teaching hospital here in Charleston, and, and she's a clinical social worker. And it's something that I think tacitly some people know, but cases of abuse and neglect have dramatically risen, um, particularly um, the abuse of women and children in domestic settings is just, is, is dramatically risen in COVID and, and, and is continuing. So like, there's not numbers on that. Those numbers aren't being published. Um, they're not being talked about as part of the pandemic, but but of course they are part of the disaster. And, and I think like both local governmental and 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 some of this work that you're doing in in digital to digital health um, startups can can really make a, a real impact on on some of these areas that aren't being given attention. So so thank you for that work. Um, I've got one more question for both of you. And, and this has like been my personal, I, don't, I, I guess you could call it a hobby horse question throughout COVID calls, because I, I want as many people who are interested in epidemiology to answer it for me so I can make sense of it is, and this is my observation, and please crucify me if you think I'm wrong, um, because that's helpful too. But what I've been seeing the last two years, and it's increasing now, is that We've had this really incredible, and, and, and I think we're going to see historic mobilization of epidemiology in real time to where we have epidemiologists all throughout the world working on COVID and finding really important new things and helping, helping to like see epidemiology as this really important science. And yet, the communication of epidemiological knowledge has been a complete failure, in my opinion. Like we have, we failed to communicate effect, in effective ways epidemiological knowledge as it's changed and unfolded about COVID-19. And I think we continue to do that. Um, one, I'm wondering where both of you think that has come from, 
from your experience and two, like, what can we do about that? What can we do like about the fact that epidemiology or as you were saying earlier, Freya, like some bastardized version of epidemiology that isn't epidemiology. It's just epidemiological talking points or it's like metonyms of epidemiology. How, what can we do to address that? Because I think I've talking to, spoken with so many epidemiologists about this and they're frustrated, but they're also like, I'm just frustrated. And they put their hands in the air and continue to do the amazing work that they do. But that, at some level, that's not enough. So, so Freya, let's start with you with one kind of like, I know this is an unfair question, but just like thought experiment question. And then, and then David. I like, I love like what a sort of forward thinking interventionist historian you are though. Like, <laughs> not sit back and document, um, but what next? A futurist, uh, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> um, oh yeah, well now you've sort of also guilted me. I was a bit blindsided by the what should we do, but I was just going to rant about how a lot of politicians and spokespeople have probably completely confused the public as to some very basic principles and how they work. The idea of don't wear masks around the people you see regularly only strangers and things I don't know like that must have confused people just coming to terms with network theory um yeah so I was going to blame them and I was going to blame the small group of that's uh, it's weird to use this term but rogue public health that little group that caused all these trouble kind of undermining some very like robust and again quite straightforward principles and then I was just going to give a kind of a sort of what I would have loved to have done is if someone had bought me out for a year, given me like five RAs, because when you're doing, when you're say the manager of epidemiological activities and it's Ebola, the amount of time and sort of marshalling of data to just write an epi bulletin, like a little concise, useful summary of the situation is huge. The idea of a pandemic where you really need to keep an idea, these different dynamics at different points in time, you, there's so much uncertainty and so many areas that aren't necessarily something you're directly involved in that you have to take into account. And so you have to sort of almost blindly trust people, but then try and verify. It's like it takes a massive amount of infrastructure to create quite a simple epidemiological rendering in one point of time. And it's not something like individual epis can marshal. That said, people like uh, Christina Pagel um, and there's a few others have done a really good job, at least on Twitter of trying to get clear, concise commentary out regularly. Uh, but I have no idea where they find the time. Um, yeah. What's going I mean, forward? Yeah. Go ahead. Go ahead. Oh, no, no. no. I would say I, epidemiology is a really, public health, such a beautiful, straightforward, useful, it connects to everything else kind of thing. I don't understand why we don't teach more in sort of primary school and high school and give everyone a fighting chance when these things happen. Yeah. And, you know, a lot of I've spoken to several guests on COVID calls about this and like, you know, what we call health literacy is so important, you know, and I think in some ways, like across the world, um, I can say, especially in the in the West and particularly in the U.S., we have like underprepared our citizenry in terms of educating them about basic principles of health literacy for for this moment. Right. And I think like what is there for health literacy? It, it, it doesn't include much epidemiology. Let's be real. So, so I think you're absolutely right. Like looking forward, like that is, that's, there's gotta be a, a, a reinvestment into basic principles of health literacy. 100%. But also I, like something that I think maybe gave me an upper edge was that I'd actually in real time worked on outbreaks all the way through. And so things like how long it takes, all the uncertainties mm -hmm. were quite familiar. So yeah. I think maybe more historical case studies of people being more familiar with, this is what it looked like last time. 
or the time before that, the last hundred years. You know, I'll never forget when I was doing my doctoral work at the University of Minnesota, there is a group of really well-known epidemiologists there who studied um, the relationship between smoking and lung cancer and who did really important work there. And and, and there's a a team of them that really grew out of the post-1950s risk factor epidemiology tradition. And and when I was working on my doctoral work on outbreak investigation and thinking as epidemiology as outbreak investigation, every single one of them said things like, that's interesting, but it doesn't matter anymore because nobody in epi works on outbreak investigation. We only work on, you know, risk factor. And 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 they were they believed that. And 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 it's always struck stuck with me um, since that time. So it's 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 good to um, connect with people like you who 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 follow in a very different tradition. So thank you, David. Yeah, I, I think one of the biggest issues has actually been this communication of uncertainty. Um, uh, fuel to be able to reject or believe what they wanted to believe, you know. So, oh, you predicted there were going to be a hundred thousand deaths, and there were only a thousand, and this type of thing. When it was never a prediction, it was a model, and you know, right. all models are wrong. Some are useful, and and that's been very very poorly communicated. But, but science in general is, has a very big problem with science communication. You know, we look at climate change challenges we're having there, and there's there's not that many great science communicators around. Um, I look at Hans Rosling, who I mentioned, who was brilliant on demographic statistics. Uh, um, Carl Sagan in the science world, um, Brian Green and the physics and stuff going on. But um, yeah, that, that's it's it's a really difficult thing. And as a historian, you probably know that the best way to communicate is through storytelling. And um, there's not really been enough of that going on. Yeah, you know, like what's what's the yeah, hundred people dead to tragedy 17,000 dead that we have in Sweden now that's a statistic yeah that's right it just disappeared yeah you know and some of this is like really the storytelling but really I agree yeah go ahead do you have a final point David sorry flipped off yeah I just wanted to say that but but we have to go back to those merchants of of uh, of doubt that have been have have been doing this and are actually better at the storytelling uh than the scientists and it also takes us back into the um the ukraine war is that uh when you start following the money there's an awful lot of connections between it all then tobacco denialism climate change denialism COVID denialism uh it's it's there's commonalities here and we really need to to learn as a as a society as a world how to fight back against this yeah, absolutely, and um, and and both of you, uh, Freya and David, are are doing that fight. So so thank you so much. I'm so so uh, glad that you both could join me today. This has been such a rich and powerful discussion. Um, if you haven't already, please please follow, please read their work, David Stetson and Freya Jebcott. Thank you so much. Tomorrow, my discussion on COVID calls will be with a group of history of science and medicine. Uh, graduate students, a group that I think hasn't been given much of a voice during this pandemic. So I'm really pleased to have that discussion tomorrow. You can join me at 3 p.m. Eastern.